Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. Earlier this year, on September 4th, the people of Chile went to the polls to vote on a new constitution. Now, it would have been one of the most progressive charters the world has ever seen. And it would have replaced an outdated market fundamentalist constitution adopted under the right-wing military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet 42 years ago. Alas, it wasn't meant to be. In overwhelming numbers, voters turned down the proposal and sent their country back to the drawing board. Yeah, and you know, it's it's hard not to wonder what went wrong and also what's in store for the Chilean people moving forward. This was all very confusing to those of us watching from the North. Right. Not only that, Siva, but I'm very curious about the lessons we can learn mm-hmm. from this for our democracy. Look, we've been exploring in this season how outmoded and undemocratic our own constitution is, seriously flawed. And the Chile case provided what seemed like this shining example of a country that uh, was going to reform its own democracy, making it fairer, more just. Mm -hmm. But the effort failed. So what can we learn from Chile's experience? Well, today we have with us the right person to tackle this question, Will. Camila Vergara is on the line with us from London. Camila is a legal theorist, a historian, and a journalist based at the University of Cambridge. And she's an expert on Chile, her native country. Camila, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me in the show. Well, Camila, when voters gave the go-ahead in 2020 to write a new constitution, the support for that process was overwhelming. But the proposal as drafted could barely generate 38% of the vote. So what happened? Why did so many people seem to agree that a new constitution was needed, yet this constitution was not? Well, to reject the uh, constitution of Pinochet, which was drafted, as you say, during the dictatorship and codified neoliberalism, austerity, basically, that was common sense. However, uh, the new draft needed a little bit of pedagogy and needed more information. So the basic problem of this uh, draft was not the content of the draft, but the process itself. Mm. So the drafting took only seven months. So uh, there were seven parallel commissions working on the articles, and it was very, very difficult to follow uh, the discussion and the voting. So people were really not aware of the content itself, And the media in Chile, the traditional media, TV and radio, are overwhelmingly uh, from a conservative faction. All the TV stations are conservative, let's put it like that. So they were all, the conservative faction was against uh, approving any constitution, any new constitution. So from the beginning, they were uh, undermining the process, calling the convention a political circus. Uh, So the media focused on that instead of the content. And people really didn't read the Constitution. So let's talk about the content a little bit. I understand that this proposed Constitution had something like 388 articles, and it offered pretty deep structural reforms. It it expanded rights for indigenous people and for women and LGBTQ people, many environmental protections. So can you describe what Chile would have gotten out of this had it passed? So the content was, as you say, great in the sense that before we had the Pinochet constitution and this constitution is uh, very minimal in terms of the rights it gives to the people. It's very strong in property rights, but not in all other rights. 
So uh, Chile is very unequal. So you need a lot of rights uh, that are codified in order to be able to fight for those rights in court later. So uh, there were originally 499 articles, actually. Whoa. No wonder people didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, they trimmed it down to 388. You know, they did a great job, but it still was very, very long. Uh, however, I ha do not know any constitutional scholar that had read the Constitution and had said, uh, this is a bad text. Mm. Uh, this was a very good text, uh, and it followed the Latin American constitution-making processes and enshrined new rights in order to rectify reality. In order to change reality, you need to first uh, change the legal juridical reality. So, for example, um, one of the most um, impressive rights was the right to housing. That right was actually made not by the representatives themselves, but came from the grassroots organizations of people that who not have a house. Basically, there were many committees of housing that came together, draft articles and send it to the convention. And those articles passed almost unaltered. Okay, mm. So when we talk about misinformation or lack of information about the Constitution, what happened is that the right-wing coalition started spreading the fake news that even though the right to housing was very strong, it didn't allow you to have your house. Oh, the okay. right oh, yeah. to property was not combined with the right to the housing, which <sighs> doesn't make any sense juridically. <laughs> but they basically said to the people, to the working classes, if you receive a penny from the state to pay for your house, which is like around half of the population, the state will take your house. You will have access to housing, but it will not be yours. So people were with the idea that if you approve the new constitution, you will be worse off than you were today because you would not be the owner of your own house. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Camila, the left-leaning president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, has this famous pledge last year. If Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. First of all, what does that mean? Talk about Chile as the cradle of neoliberalism, but then he turned out to be wrong. So what does this mean? Is there still support for egalitarianism for a certain amount of justice, social equality in Chile? Or is that whole project now called into question? Well, uh, we called Chile the ground zero of neoliberalism because it was the first time in history where these policies of austerity, basically structural austerity, were imposed and codified into law. So when we had the popular uprising in October 2019 and this, this constituent process opened up, everybody was talking about that this was the opportunity to actually reflect and look at those foundations and really pick them apart and dismantle them in order to create a new, better society that could be a model for the rest of the world uh, to reform their own legal systems. Uh, talking about Gabriel Boric, our president, he said these words that he wanted to basically dismantle and neoliberalism. Uh, it ended up being uh, only rhetoric. Um, and I'm just going to put one example. Uh, one of the uh, basic tenets of neoliberalism is that you as a country need to open to the world and have low tariffs and have all kinds of uh, trade agreements. Uh, but this uh, puts you in a position of subordination vis-a-vis -vis other bigger countries like the United States, like Canada, like, you know, Australia. And there was this controversial um, uh, agreement, the TPP-11, the Trans-Pacific, mm -hmm. that was uh, forced by Obama at, the, at, at one point. Trump got out and basically it was um, fed to many of the uh, countries and pushed. Okay, And this uh, agreement has a chapter that is very controversial that allows corporations that are transnational 
to take the country to court, to uh, arbitration, if the country changes its regulations. So if Chile changes its constitution and that impacts the profits of the transnational company, the company could bring Chile to arbitration and make Chile pay millions of dollars in fees because it was uh, against its profits. Okay, So Boric, he... Uh, last year, he was wearing T-shirts to Congress saying no to, to, to the TPP-11. He was making videos, going very vocal against it. However, when he came to power, he decided to uh, allow the Senate to ratify it. And uh, everything tells us that he will actually sign it. We cannot dismantle neoliberalism if we subordinate to transnational corporations, right? Mm-hmm. Can I just follow up? Because I want I, I want to be clear in my mind, and I'm sure our listeners want to be clear too. How do you codify neoliberalism and austerity? Is it balanced budgets? Uh, is it trade and protection regimes? I mean, what were the most sort of offending uh, legal codes that really gave permanent status to this neoliberal architecture? So in order to have a neoliberal system, you have to have a small state. And when you don't have a small state, you need to first shrink it. So huh. Pinochet, what he did first, and the Chicago boys, the famous Chicago boys, the economists that went to Chicago to study uh, uh, Milton Friedman economics and Hayek, you know, uh, they decided to shrink the state and they privatized hundreds of state-owned companies. After they privatized them, they incorporated into the Constitution the rule that if the state wanted to expand once again by buying or or by uh, investing or by doing anything that involved large sums of money, the president needed the approval of the two houses of Congress with a supermajority, which made it almost impossible to change it, right? And also it codified an electoral system that allowed for the over-representation of the minority. And the calculation here is that conservatives would have a permanent minority in, in the you know two-party coalition. Ah. So it would be overrepresented, giving them almost half of Congress and therefore the ability to block any change. Wow, you guys should really reform your constitution. <laughs> right. As, as should we. As should we. Right. It sounds a lot yeah, like I mean, the American it, it does. It, it actually, actually has have... been reformed hundreds of times. And you know what is the, the incredible thing? And this is the last time that was reformed like big with all the, what we call the authoritarian enclaves of the Constitution, it was President Lagos, who is a socialist, the first socialist after Salvador Allende was killed in in the coup, who did all these reforms and actually signed his name to the new Constitution. So now we should call it the Constitution Pinochet Lagos. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So if clearly... Most people in Chile understand that the existing constitution is limited and and is going to prevent them from uh, having their lives and their state and their country flourish. And yet this constitution didn't work for them for, you know, if you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, it didn't work for them because it seemed to do the wrong things or do too much of some things. So first of all, is there going to be another chance And secondly, if there is, can you imagine a process that from the beginning might seem more palatable to a broad swath of the voters? Well, the problem with the with the text was not the text itself. Again, it was not the content. It was the process and it was the way it was sold to the people. So for you to understand how bad the misinformation and the lack of information was, the people didn't receive not even one official letter 
that there was going to be a plebiscite on a new constitution. This is one thing. On the other hand, we had the President Boric at the moment of the plebiscite uh, had around 33% approval rating. So Uh. people in general, in their mindset, when they are confronted to a ballot, they tend to approve of the government, which is in office, more than the text itself. So all the other previous constitution-making processes in Latin America, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, all of the presidents there were leading the process. They were basically educating the people. They were pushing for it. So the people that were in favor of those governments voted in favor. In our case, the president had very low approval rating. Congress was below 20% approval rating. So the political class was completely delegitimized. So people went out and voted reject. And the third uh, thing that changed is at the beginning, the plebiscite to initiate the process was voluntary. Anybody that wanted to go vote could vote. But now it was mandatory. So people that were not willing to vote, they were forced to vote. If not, they would have to pay a penalty that was around a third of the minimum wage monthly. Okay, so this is a huge thing for the popular sectors. So the majority of people that voted reject were from the popular classes, which in general vote for the left. Okay, so it was completely like a paradox. And of course, the day the reject vote was announced, the conservative coalition said, well, of course, the people don't want a new constitution. They are from our side, which is not correct. People were voting to reject the current administration, you know, the current state of affairs because they didn't know what was going on and because they didn't want something imposed from above. Camila, it's so interesting because many of the phenomena that you describe have been going on here in the United States. And this is one of the conundrums that we face, which is that people who go to the polls are often angry and they just basically say no to whatever they're being offered, even if they might have an interest in passing some of these pieces of legislation. But there's another way in which Chile and the U.S. Uh, share a common story, and that has to do with Pinochet himself and his uh, coming to power in 1973 in a coup. I teach the history of the Cold War here at the University of Virginia. We always talk about the Chile case. And we're always shocked when we look at the now declassified documents showing just how much the Americans were involved in discrediting Allende and then in supporting Pinochet once he took power. Uh, How much does this still weigh in politics and society in Chile? Does it still shape the rhetoric around things like constitutional reform and democracy? Very much, because uh, as a country, we didn't really have a transition and reconciliation and putting people in jail for their crimes Uh, We went from dictatorship into democracy smoothly. So uh, one of the things that happened is that there was complete impunity. There was uh, a law against prosecuting military. So the judiciary had to uh, be very creative. And one of the things that happened is we famously have many thousands of people that were disappeared. So that crime of the disappearance of people is an ongoing crime because the bodies have not been found. You know, there, there are cases of torture, for example, just being adjudicated today. That, you know, this is, this is not something that was in the past. So the problem is that the right-wing coalition, the conservative bloc, even the younger generation, they do not see Pinochet and its legacy as a bad legacy. Mm. They still believe that communism is like a cancer, mm. that people that were communists are against democracy, and that they, who are the heirs of this dictatorial right-wing way of doing politics and that is very moral, moralistic, um, family traditional oriented, is the, uh, the only way that you are going to preserve the republic from impurity and corruption, okay? The candidate that ran against Boric, 
eh, José Antonio Cast. He is the son of a Nazi soldier that went to Chile. And he is the uh, brother of uh, one of the Pinochet ministers and is a very good friend of Bolsonaro and of Donald Trump. And he almost won the election. So uh, we in Chile are very uh, frightened that after, you know, this uh, Boric government that has very low approval, the far right can come back uh, with a vengeance. Wow. And just 2019, we saw millions of Chileans in the streets of Santiago and across the country. And of course, this follows this thing that I know you think a lot about, right? This notion of, of popular uprising that in many cases is about confronting corruption or confronting inequality. And in many cases is also about bolstering or establishing democracy. We've seen it since 2011 in Tunisia and Egypt and Morocco and, and Tel Aviv and Athens and Barcelona. And we've seen it in this country through Occupy and, of course, throughout Latin America in various forms in the past decade. And yet it seems like moving from this moment of protest into a moment of creating democratic capacity is failing. How and why is this failing? What are we missing? How, how are we failing to translate these popular passions for addressing inequality and precarity into true working democracy? I think we have been channeling this popular energy from below in the wrong way. Mm. We have been channeling through the political system, through the electoral political system. So if you think about Occupy Wall Street, of course, that Occupy Wall Street changed the rhetoric. We started talking about oligarchy all of a sudden. Right. The 1%. This changed the way we understand our societies. We correctly understand them now. Before, we thought we were just democracies. Now we know that we're living in an oligarchic democracy, to say the least. Right. right? An electoral system that is co-opted by the most powerful and the richest people in society. And all of this process that you mentioned from revolutions from below were channeled through the political system and were dead in the water after that, basically. The same happened in Chile because the uprising, and we need to remember that the people were gathered in assemblies and cabildos, as we call them, assemblies all around Chile. There were thousands of them, at least in the first month of the uprising. That energy that was organically institutionalized in the sense that from the ground up, they were people meeting in assemblies and making decisions was not channeled through a popular path, but was sucked in into the political electoral system. And that, I think, gives us the death of the movement. I see. And the oligarchs always win. Yes. <laughs> well, what's the prospect for a new re a new reform and, and what's the next step? So before the uh, plebiscite, the president says, well, if the new constitution, the draft constitution fails, I, we will call a new process. However, the problem is that the only way to call a new constituent process is to reform again the Pinochet constitution. And it needs a supermajority in both houses to actually reform the constitution to introduce a new constituent process because the first one had an expiration date. It was dated. So therefore it is gone. Oh. <laughs> and now because the uh, conservative coalition is feeling that, you know, the reject is an endorsement of their views, they're saying that they don't want any constituent process whatsoever. And therefore... It is likely that the new process, if we are going to have one, will be one dominated by experts with rules that will allow for uh, the status quo to continue and uh, that it will be tried to be sold to the people and maybe it will be rejected again. So at this point, it is very unlikely that we will have a constituent process in the next, uh, I would say, year. 
is a very tough uh, negotiation and the right-wing coalition has half the Senate. So this is an important roadblock. Camila, this is a good way to uh, close by coming to your 2020 book, um, which put forward ideas for an anti-oligarchic republic. And, you know, I think if I'm right, your diagnosis is that liberal democracy is, in fact, the problem, <laughs> that our idea that liberal democracy is somehow the ultimate goal, that it's perfect, that it's rational, that it will solve all of our institutional conflicts is a myth. Uh, and uh, it inherently leads to inequality. But you're putting forward some alternatives. Paint for us a picture. How do we get to these alternatives? Are they really available to us? How would we make an anti-oligarchic republic work? So first of all, the problem is a representative democracy uh, as it was crafted from the very beginning. So if we look at the sources, the primary sources in the processes where regimes were codified, uh, representation was used not to channel the popular will, but to keep the people away from power. So we formally, every one of us, can stand for office. However, only a very tiny minority gets to actually exercise power. And that tiny minority gets decided by the minority in parties, right? So therefore, even though we have that right, it's just formal. And this is what has been throughout history. And that we call democracy. This is something that has nothing to do with democracy in history, because democracy means that the demos, the people, actually rule. They actually exercise power. As Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, would put it, uh, democracy is about rule and being ruled in turn. So the idea is that everybody could have a chance to actually exercise some power. Uh, this was completely dismissed. And when the uh, constitutional democracies were crafted, there was one thinker in France that looked at uh, the U.S. and said, this structure is going to corrupt so fast that we are not going to uh, be given any time to react and we are not going to know that it's happening. It's going to happen in the backstage, basically. It's going to have one formal government and then we're going to have the real government, the people pulling the strings from the side, and we're going to call that democracy. He thought the people need to be involved to keep representatives honest. So he proposed that to the representative structure that we have, the separation of power, president, the Congress and the judiciary, we add a popular institutions. So for him, every uh, place in France, every neighborhood needed to have an assembly with real people, with uh, neighbors that would gather. These people could uh, make decisions on the ground and would pass an approved decision to the next assembly next door, basically. And that would, you know, pass the post to the next one and so on and so forth until it, you had a majority of assemblies agreeing to something. When you have an, a majority of assemblies agreeing to something, then that means that is a mandate and therefore the representatives need to follow through. That is the uh, safeguard for democracy. So I think we cannot just abolish the system altogether. I think that is folly because uh, there are vested interests in the institutions that we have. What we need to do is to add new popular institutions that are anti-oligarchic that are promoting of popular power and going against the powerful few. And then you can have uh, other institutions that are um, more in the political economic side. 
For example, the uh, universal basic income would give you a floor in which people do not have to uh, be working three jobs and can actually be focusing on politics from time to time, uh, devoting time. So the gap, the inequality gap, is important in a society. You cannot have people that are so, so poor that they cannot really be meaningful citizens. The same is for the wealth tax, right? We need to have a cap. We have a limit for everything. Everything has a limit. The only thing that doesn't have a limit is the accumulation of wealth. You're allowed to accumulate wealth boundlessly. And this is completely pernicious. uh, And we see throughout history that this is something that undermines the freedom of everyone. Well, Camila Vergara, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me in the show. Camila Vergara Gonzalez is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Cambridge. She's a journalist, historian, and critical legal theorist. Her work has appeared in The New Left Review, Jacobin, and the Journal of Philosophy and Social Criticism. She's the author of the book Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. We drowning? We drowning. We're slowly drowning with sea level rise. Wading between two titans investigates sea level rise, climate gentrification, and historic processes of racism. Working class people are at the mercy of the tides and the landlords. Hear the story of Norfolk, Virginia, home to the world's largest naval base and a powerful African-American history. Follow us for updates at The Repair Lab on Twitter. Well, Will, you know, I like to hesitate when I'm tempted to compare the experience of democracy in another country with that of the United States, right? The United States, like every other country, has its own conditions, its own historical precedents, its own internal dynamics. But wow, when we listen to, when we listen to the story of Chile since 1973, you know, there's just so many dynamics that echo our own experiences, right? Totally. I mean, I used to my scholarship is focused on the United States and Europe, but right. since we've been doing this podcast, I've really come to see that the United States is in so many ways a Latin American country, which isn't really too surprising in that so many Latin American constitutions were loosely designed on some melange of American and European experience. Under duress in many under cases. Under duress, under American occupation or or otherwise uh, influence. But so many of the same patterns seem to apply, the rise of oligarchies, the, the ways in which uh, minorities and uh, – uh, indigenous populations are are silenced or are bought off in one way or another, forced to compromise, forced to make deals that ultimately hurt their own interests. Right. I mean, 
The very fact that we experienced a near coup in 2021 uh, seems so out of character for the United States. But if you put that into the context of a Latin American story, it seems familiar and it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of continuities, the use of violence, the rising uh, destabilization of our democracy, the flooding of our country with, uh, with guns and with grievances. Those two things are well known in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. You know, uh, Camila brought up something that I think we really have to recognize in this country. People who grow up in Chile understand this deeply and viscerally, and I think we miss it. And that is the ways in which neoliberalism has been so naturalized, right? To the point where if you grow up in this country, especially if you've grown up since the 1980s, you have this sense that there is this limited range of political possibilities, that the state must be small with some exceptions, that the state must not interfere with the market except in some exceptions, right? Maybe the debate is about the range of the ways the state might limit negative externalities, and that's as far as it goes. But the notion of a broader sense of flourishing, the notion of a social or communal polis That's just not part of our political imagination. You know, it's really hard to even have a serious conversation about any other sort of model of how we might be as a a society. Yeah, and one of the sort of striking realities of our political discourse is that the Constitution has been so reified, so transformed into a almost a kind of, you know, Moses-like tablets brought down from the mountain that they should never be questioned, never be reformed, never be changed, even though they have a living history. And (laughs) they are the result of a whole series of backroom deals that reflected the interests of the men who designed it. There's no surprise there. We know that as historians. But our political discourse has... um, completely accepted the idea that the Constitution is perfect and that it really should never be changed. What should be changed is our willingness to adapt to these ironclad and essentially perfect rules, which is ludicrous. No society wants to live in the 18th century. No 21st century person wants to live in the 18th century. But somehow we have to live by rules that were hammered out by an all-knowing group of founders, capital F, who seem to have unlimited power to see the future. Right. Well, you know, uh, that's what struck me about Chile, right? Here was this overwhelming desire by the people of Chile, all of whom have been through some stuff in the past 50 years. And they clearly said, we don't think our constitution was handed down on stone tablets by demigods. We know our constitution was written by fascists and economists from the University of Chicago. (laughs) And we would like to do something about that. And I, my immediate reaction as an American was, oh, wait, you can do that? Like, how exciting, right? And so I spent the summer imagining that the people of Chile were going to teach us something about what was possible. And yet, we saw all of the afflictions of our modern political and media systems at work in Chile. It just became impossible to have a serious public conversation about something so crucial as what the constitution of a major nation should be. And so when you look at Chile and the experience of the past year, it offers such hope and such disappointment. Well, that's our theme here on Democracy in Danger. (laughs) Hope and disappointment in in equal measure. I'm hope, Will's (laughs) disappointment. No, wait, Will's (laughs) hope, Siva's disappointment. I keep forgetting which one we're supposed to be. Depends on which day of the week it is. Right. 
We're capping off season six in two weeks with a show about political change makers in the United States. Will and our producer Robert Armengal will be speaking with the author Anand Girdadas. And I went and spent a couple of years with people, organizers, activists, doing the best work in this country to still endeavor to change minds. People who refuse to write people off, people who show it can still be done, even now. Have you lived in Chile or do you have family there? Let us know what you think of today's show. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. And please check out our website, dindanger.org. There we have links to Camila Vergara's essays and books and much more on every episode we've done. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengold. Rebecca Barry is our assistant producer. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Talk to you soon. Thank you.